for the second of our two-part series on stem cells, Vasilisa and I are back with Dr. Tiago Gonsalves, Assistant Professor in the Department of Neuroscience here at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He studies the formation of adult-born neurons in the dentate gyrus, the site of neurogenesis in the adult brain, and how these neurons integrate into the existing circuitry. We continue our conversation on neural stem cells by featuring Dr. Gonsalves' research on the process of neurogenesis and how he studies these questions in his lab. We also explore what role the generation of new neurons might have in exercise, disease, and even depression. But what about the future of the field? What else could we attain with stem cells? Can we rebuild neuronal circuits? And how does this all apply to humans boosting our own neurogenesis? Answering these questions may just help us figure out how to keep our brains sharper a little longer. You're listening to Neuron Air, exploring your brain's phenomena, one scientific adventure at a time. Yeah, so uh, I'm Tiago Gonsalves. I'm an assistant professor here at Albert Einstein uh, College of Medicine. I'm in the Department of Neuroscience, and I do research on how um, you can add new neurons to the adult brain. So that's the main topic of, of my research. So um, our lab studies uh, adult neurogenesis, so the generation of the new uh, neurons in the adult brain. And in particular, we study uh, how these neurons find their way into making meaningful connections in the adult brain. And um, one of the things that we study too is how, how our experiences influence this process of generation and integration of new neurons into the brain. Meaning, uh, if you go to a museum, if you go out jogging, if you go about your everyday life, it turns out that whatever experiences you go through will actually influence how these newborn neurons will integrate your brain, and how many of them do. What does it mean when you say that there are these new neurons in the brain? Are we getting new neurons all over the brain, or is how often is this happening? Well... It's a limited phenomenon. So in the mammalian brain, it seems to be limited mostly to the dentate gyrus and in rodents, uh, the olfactory bulb. Although there's other reports of neurogenesis in other areas, these seem to be in perhaps a little bit lesser magnitude. There's reports in the uh, striatum, hypothalamus, and other areas of the brain. But I would say that probably in the mammalian brain, and especially with relevance to humans, the dentate gyrus is the place in the brain where, the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, is the place in the brain where adult neurogenesis is the most established. Why is it so so limited? Like if you were, you know, if you cut yourself, your skin regenerates or something else regenerates to some extent, but the brain doesn't seem to do that. No. And, and, you know, another way of asking it is why only there? Why only in, in very specific places? Can you maybe tell us what the dentate gyrus is and what it's responsible for? And maybe why you think that's the locus of these new stem cells? So the dentate gyrus is a part of the brain that's located in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a region that's heavily involved in uh, uh, learning and memory, among other things. And it's connected to the cortex, an area called the entorhinal cortex, and, the, and gets its primary input from there. And then the dentate is basically the main gateway into the structure, the hippocampus. And the hippocampus seems to be very important for memories, in particular what we call episodic memories. So memories of things that happen to us, as opposed to, for example, memories of you know how to ride a bike or that, that kind of learning, or um, it's mostly memories of events and contexts. So 
we think that this is a place where neurogenesis has been found. It doesn't mean that there aren't any other locations where it is present. In fact, other people have um, proposed uh, other areas with neurogenesis. But there is a, a, a lot, I would say that this is probably the best studied area. And there is a lot of evidence for neurogenesis in these areas, both in rodents and model systems, but also in humans. So there is a lot of literature on that. I sort of threw in the word stem cells, but you actually haven't, call, you didn't call these new adult neuron stem cells. So I was wondering if you can maybe explain what exactly these neurons are and maybe what the stem cells are in this case or how that's related. Yeah, so these neurons, the new neurons in the adult brain need to come from somewhere. And the thing is that neurons do not divide. So you need some sort of precursor cells that are able to divide. And there is a population in the hippocampus, there is this population of adult neural stem cells that survives well into adulthood and continuously gives rise to new neurons throughout the life of the individual or the animal. And stem cells are basically cells that have the potential for, for renewal and they can differentiate into and produce different types of cells, in this case, uh, neurons, uh, glia, and so forth. So it's basically a reserve of cells with what we call neurogenic potential. So they were the ability to make neurons. And by the way, nobody knows really why would you need neurogenesis in the brain. You know, that's that's an open question still. I don't think there's any reasonable... Um, answers to that. Well, the the one thing that if, you know one would think is that you would want to replace lost neurons. You know, why is it that the brain is the one place in the body that you don't get much cell? I mean, you don't really get any cell turnover. Right, you don't. But but I mean, it in a slightly different way. So we can get to that in a little bit. But if we we subject animals to different behavioral experiences, for example, just putting an animal in a rich environment, what we see in the lab and other labs see similar things, is that they can reshape their connections. An enriched environment means... An enriched environment is basically, we usually keep uh, animals in, in laboratory cages. Which are pretty basic, right? I mean, Which are very basic, in fact. Nothing really they're in probably there. deprived environments mm -hmm. compared to, to the wild situation. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but um, if you put... If you house animals instead in these um, cages with a lot more space, social interactions because you have more mice, uh, with toys, with hiding places. And, and they're like much bigger cages, right? They're much, yeah. much bigger. So we're talking about cages that are uh, maybe the size of uh, five, six, seven cages, mm -hmm. regular cages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we house animals there, it turns out that not only do you get a lot more... Um, newborn neurons, but these newborn neurons will also make different connections. The enriched environment, is that something that humans can, can replicate for themselves and, and increase their own neurogenesis? Well, my first instinct was to say yes, absolutely. Uh, although that's not quite proven yet. You know, part of the issue is, is this whole idea of whether how can you quantify neurogenesis, adult neurogenesis in humans? And it, it turns out that it's it's hard. You know, it's not that easy. You obviously cannot slice the brains of, of neurons to figure out uh, how much neurogenesis there is. And, um, and this is actually a, a matter of a lot of uh, controversy, even recent controversy. As, as you know, there were a couple of papers um, that looked at adult neurogenesis in humans. It had been established in the late 90s in a paper by um, Peter Erickson and, and, and Rusty Gage that uh, humans do have adult neurogenesis because this was debated for a very long time. In fact, the whole concept of adult neurogenesis was debated. It has a very interesting history because a lot of people were adult neurogenesis denialists for a very long time. 
like climate change deniers or deniers and <laughs> yeah, flat I mean, earth I pro- mean, proponents. <laughs> probably with um with a good reason, right? Because it it is a kind of an extraordinary thing when you think about it. Mm-hmm. So maybe it is reasonable to say, well, if you make an extraordinary claim, you need extraordinary evidence. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the first reports of adult neurogenesis happened in the sixties. And it pretty much took until the 90s to, for everybody to finally get, get on board with it. How did they first see adult neurogenesis in the very early stages? And, and now, too. Yeah. So the first um, reports of adult neurogenesis came from experiments by Joseph Altman and the paper uh, Altman and Das in the 60s. And what they did is they used these um, radioactive nucleotide analogs. So nucleotides are the basic, the basic um, components of the basic building blocks of DNA. So when cells divide, they need to replicate their DNA for the daughter cell. Uh, so would they, they would give these nucleotides, nucleotide analogs to um, mice or these nu- nucleotide, um, the radio t- radioactive nucleotides to mice and, um, or rats, I forget which one it was, and then it would slice the brain and do an autoradiography. And consistently they got, an autoradiography basically means you put the slice of mice, of, of, the, of the rat brain or the mouse brain next to a, um, to a, uh, film, photographic film, and then you put it in a box, you forget about it for a while, and then you go back and you develop that film, and sure enough, if there, if there is any radioactivity, you should see the exact location where the radioactivity is. And consistently, they found radioactivity in this area that corresponds to the, the uh, dente gyrus. So they kind of said, um, well, there's um, this DNA replication occurring here. That means that these neurons are new neurons. You know, that's a, by the way, this method of uh, looking at, at um, um, integration of nucleotides into DNA is a common method, method to measure uh, cell proliferation, cell birth. They published this and nobody would believe them. And Eventually, Joseph Altman ended up by working on something completely different because he couldn't make a career out of uh, adult neurogenesis. And this was the situation for a very long time. So later, people have found uh, adult neurogenesis in birds, and people have found that um, cells, you know, neuronal cultures from uh, the hippocampus, when brought in 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 vitro when 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 um in, vi- in vitro just meaning like dissected out of in them. glass yeah, essentially and, yeah that they had this ability to form new neurons and uh and that's really when the field took off so and then eventually people went back to the old results from them from from the rodents and when new techniques were able to rediscover um, and and what about in humans? How were they first able to confirm the, the this idea that there might be adult neurogenesis? The experiment, the first findings in in humans uh, were in this paper by uh, Peter Erickson and, and and Fred Gage. They actually uh, studied a cohort of uh, cancer terminal cancer patients that had this drug. I believe it's a chemotherapy drug that is no longer in use, but basically it's very similar to the idea of adding a nucleotide analog, something that integrates DNA. And then they they were able to do to slice postmortem the brains of these patients and to look for neurogenesis, for adult neurogenesis. So that was the first kind of clear evidence. So uh, people were able to do. Uh, these experiments in humans, and it's, it's amazing that you were able to do that. Then, more recently, there, were, uh, there was a paper, actually more than one paper, by the lab of uh, Jonas Friesen in Sweden, and they did something really clever. They looked 
at the concentrations of radioactive isotopes in the DNA of single cells in the dented gyrus of humans. Now, because of the advent of um, nuclear weapon testing in the 50s, in the 40s and 50s, it turns out that the atmosphere has a certain time stamp for uh, radioactive uh, isotopes that you can actually measure in DNA. Meaning, depending on when a cell was born, you will actually be able to measure a, a certain concentration, uh, for example, carbon-14. Mm -hmm. in, in the neuron? In the DNA of the neuron. In the okay. Yeah. So this is a really clever approach. So they were able to find not only when neurons were born, but also from there extrapolate rates of neurogenesis, what's the rate of um, new neurons versus uh, neurons uh, born at, at birth, and, and so forth. And the, the carbon-14 dating is actually accurate because it's like when they carbon date dinosaurs, I know that like, I mean, they've been fossilized or whatever, but they're like, oh, this is from a range of millions of years ago. So how can you do Remember that, that there was this very sharp peak between the time when, when, when we started, humans started doing the first nuclear explosions, which used to be atmospheric, mm -hmm. which is not something that we do anymore. But there was a very sharp peak in isotopes, and this decayed very sharply. I see. So you would. So so that means you could have, let's say, two different neurons in the brain um, that have undergone or, or a result of neurogenesis. One having a higher concentration and one having a lower concentration, and you could tell that those, you know, the, the one with higher concentration was older because it has a higher concentration. Yeah, exactly. So you can actually map it to the decay curve of okay. these isotopes. Cool. Wow, that's really cool. So, and then after this, there were a few papers that looked just at um, immunostaining. So with antibodies against markers, you know, molecules that are, that are expressed exclusively in these new neurons. And... This is where recently a lot of problems came in because one one article in particular looked at this and they found that neurogenesis actually decays very fast after uh, you know the the early childhood years and they said you know there's really almost no adult neurogenesis and they did this using these uh, standings and they claimed you know a lot of the labeling that was done before because antibodies labeling with antibodies is extremely sensitive to, for example, the quality of the tissue. And of course, with humans, it's not the same as with lab animals, meaning you can't just choose what kind of tissue you're going to get and process it. And, and so a poor quality tissue will pick up excess antibody. It will be nonspecific. Yeah, there's a lot of issues that can happen, but you know, you could have the antigen can actually degrade, uh, a variety of things. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that this paper was published, and it was all over the news. You know, you open the New York Times, and they said, well, there's no new neurons in the brain. Sorry to inform you. And then there was another paper that was published as a, a little bit of a rebuttal to that. And this other paper basically said, uh, no, actually, we find plenty of neurogenesis. And look, it goes forever. You know, really, even in age individuals, you have in you have neurogenesis. So then, what are you supposed to believe? Well, you know, that's what's complicated, right? So it comes down to to the technical details of these articles, and sometimes this is difficult in science. I would say that right now, the majority of the evidence points toward adult neurogenesis being present in humans, uh, even in older individuals. There was more recently a paper that uh, was did this very exhaustive study and found neurogenesis in older humans. And actually, they looked at individuals with Alzheimer's disease, and they found that neurogen neurogenesis was impaired in individuals with Alzheimer's disease. And this was actually a nice counterpoint, right? Because then you have another kind of built-in control that you have this this pathologic condition where you don't see it, 
and you see it in in the healthy individuals so that means that you're you know it adds some reliability to your study because you have this this comparison this this contrast between pathology and healthy individuals so maybe you can you can present us a question that you might be trying to answer in your lab and what steps you do what you do in order to to get that question answered yeah so one of the questions that we're trying to answer in the lab is how does our environment shape these new neurons that we're integrating in, into the brain and we try to answer this question in mice and we basically use a very simple yet very powerful manipulation so as I said we have mice that we house in standard lab cages, which are about the size of a shoebox. And then we have mice that we house in these large and rich environments, which are basically these very large boxes with a lot of toys, running wheels, um, hideout places, and places for the mice to discover and explore. And then we, we compare what's happening uh, between in the brain, specifically in the dentigyres, between the two groups. What's really interesting is that our lab and other labs have shown that there's differences, actually substantial differences, between the growth of neurons and the integration of these neurons into the, into the dentigyres, neurons that, that are there, new neurons that develop while the mice are in a rich environment or when the mice are in a regular cage. And one of our hypotheses is that, well, maybe you have a different function for these neurons. Maybe functionally, at the circuit level, these neurons are doing different things. And there's actually some evidence that when you study the behavior, when you do behavioral experiments, for example, memory, specific memories, with these mice that, that are uh, housed in a rich environment, that they actually perform differently than mice that are housed in a regular environment, in a regular cage. So. I think that in the field there is a little bit of a, 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 a bridge that needs to be made between these behavioral experiments and the neurogenesis. What is happening in between at the circuit level? What's happening? Are these neurons more active, less active? Do they, are they active in a particular type of situation? And we want to understand what's happening at the circuit level, at the level of active, activity of the individual neurons. So for this, we need to record activity from neurons and we need to record activity from a bunch of neurons at the same time because neurons don't act in isolation right and uh, and also we need to find these neurons that's why we need to record a, a bunch of neurons because the newborn neurons are also a very small proportion of the neurons in the brain so you want to have you can't just stick a little electrode the size of a needle into the into the brain and hope that you'll go and run into a, 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 an adult-born neuron and then the electrode records the activity? The electrode records the activity. That there's that way of doing things. But we don't use that, basically because it's, very, it's difficult to identify which ones are the newborn neurons, which ones are the neurons that are already there. Some people have managed to do that, though. The approach we, we, we chose was to image neurons, a bunch of them at the same time, with a lens. And in order to image the activity, we need to have some sort of readout in these neurons that allows us to say, okay, this neuron is active right now, this neuron is not active right now. By activity, I mean electrical activity, which is called an action potential, right? So it turns out that we have these dyes, so fluorescent dyes, whose fluorescence varies when neurons are active. And most of them, the most commonly used ones are calcium dyes. So it turns out that the level of calcium inside the cells is usually very low except when cells are active so whenever you have uh, the cells fires is action potential which is basically an electrical blip of activity then uh, calcium rushes into the cell and these dyes they become brighter so the cell actually flashes the neuron will actually flash whenever it is active so this these dyes basically allow us to uh, look at activity as it happens. You need to use a particular type of light, which could be blue light, or in our case, it's a little more complicated because we're going uh, deep into the brain 
and it turns out that we cannot use the blue light because blue light doesn't reach very far deep into the into the brain so we need to use infrared light which uh, penetrates the brain a lot better but uh, we need to use infrared light that is basically around uh, half the energy of the the blue light so each photon has about half the energy so it's called what we do is we use what's called a two photon excitation so uh, two photons of this infrared light need to hit the calcium dye in order for it to become fluorescent with this we're able to interrogate each neuron individually and we can do um, hundreds or even thousand neurons at one time and see whether this neuron is, is active at a given time or not. And we do this in mice that are performing, in our case, a, a navigation task. So they're walking on a treadmill as we're imaging their brains. And sorry, how, how do you tell which ones are the newborn neurons? So we can label the newborn neurons using uh, specific genetic approaches that express another dye in this case, so we have a red dye and a green dye, and express another dye in the newborn neurons. You know, for some of the experiments, though, you may not even need to label both, meaning you can look at the hippocampus in general and then just see, you know, this is a situation where you had a lot of neurogenesis, and you can even do a staining post hoc for this. Or, and this is a situation where you don't have much neurogenesis. So in a way, we try to be a little bit agnostic about mm -hmm. what levels of neurogenesis we have and we're trying to figure out what is the effect of this enriched environment and exercise that the animals are exposed to. And this is actually an extremely interesting topic, you know, people have studied enriched environments for um, a long time now, um, since at least the 50s or so, and initially it was very interesting, a lot of the interest was, was about development. Because, of course, it plays into this whole nature versus nurture, you know, what, what, uh, how do you create a brain, how do you, you have these critical periods early in life where you can learn things like language and so forth. And when people started finding the first structural correlates of this in the brain, so, for example, they put a, a rat in an enriched environment and they saw that there's a lot more dendrites, uh, so there's a, you know the neurons are more complex, uh, more elaborated with with more synapses. Then uh, it was something that people latched onto, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of interest in this. But for us, what's interesting is actually the adult stage. So it turns out that exercise and rich environments are one of the most effective types of manipulation for preserving cognitive function, meaning exercise and rich environment, environmental enrichment, or, or it's a human correlate, are good for the brain. How exactly can humans use this as yeah, a... Like what, what kind of exercise, yeah. you know, is... And what kind of enriched environment? Yeah. I think that's what kind of exercise, probably um, aerobic exercise, there, there's different Different studies have looked at different types of exercise, but consistently, exercise in general, you know, be it running, for example, which would be aerobic exercise, um, have found a lot of these studies have found that individuals who engage regularly in exercise have better cognitive abilities. As for the enriched environment, you know, one of the most famous stories is the story about the the London taxi drivers. Are you guys familiar mm -hmm. with that? Yeah. So it turns out that to be a taxi driver in London you need to pass this exam. It's called the knowledge and you need to spend a couple of years uh, going around London usually in a moped um, and uh, learning how to find your way around London. So I'll tell you for a fact that New York City drivers do not go through this test. <laughs> no, they don't. I'm so lost. Also, New York, New York City is laid out in a grid, which London isn't. So, mm -hmm. um, I don't know what kind of how this would change the environmental enrichment that their New York cab drivers are, are, are getting. <laughs> but um, so it turns out that the volume of the hippocampus of these cab drivers is higher, um, and then subsequent 
studies have found that the volume of the hippocampus actually relates with, uh, you know, they did some longitudinal studies and they found that um, the manipulation, which is basically learning this the, your way around London, um, actually uh, results in um, a growth in the, in, in the hippocampus, in the volume of the hippocampus. Um, is it the fact that they were traveling around London that, that caused it, or was it the extensive studying that seemed to help? Um, we don't exactly know. Probably the fact that they were engaged in a, in a demanding cognitive task mm-hmm. that involved running around and, 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 and learning their environment. Right, and also in the hippocampus, there are these cells that are called grid cells and place cells. Place cells, right. Yeah. Um, so it turns out that the hippocampus encodes space. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is, you know, there was a Nobel Prize, Prize for this in 2014, I believe, John O'Keefe, uh, Maybrit Moser, and Edward Moser. So it turns out that uh, there are cells in the hippocampus that respond specifically to location. So that means that if you're at one spot on the road, there will be one cell that specifically fires, is active there, and further down the road there will be another cell that is specifically, or more cells, a, a group of cells that is will specifically fire there and not anywhere else. Now, we know now that, you know, how does this relate to memory and learning and the function of the hippocampus and, and memory and learning? Well, this is not 100% clear, but they're probably related, and there's a lot of studies on how they are related. And one thing that we're realizing is that maybe uh, place cells are more than just place cells. They are also they could encode place in a in a in a slightly different way. And say, for example, place not corresponding necessarily to the spatial location of something, but place as in where you are in a certain task, in the completion of a certain mm-hmm. task, or, uh, you know, going towards a certain goal. So it, it, these place cells are very interesting, and, and we are particularly interested in them because they provide a kind of relatively easy readout of function in the hippocampus. So you can actually have a mouse running on a treadmill, and you can look at where cells are active. Right, which is what you guys do. Exactly. So for us, this is a way of having a readout of where our cells, well, where cells fire and the specificity with which they fire are a readout of hippocampal function. They're one possible readout. It doesn't mean it's the only readout. But they, they, they provide us with a way of, of measuring changes in the circuit because this is obviously a very finely tuned circuit. You know, these neurons are firing only at a specific place. Do you think there's any potential in maybe inducing a similar new type of neurogenesis as in the dentate gyrus in other parts of the brain, even like the, like the rest of the hippocampus or in know, something else, the cortex, etc. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that the hippocampus actually, the dentate gyrus actually incorporates new neurons, and this is very well established. We don't know which environments are receptive to incorporating any new neurons. And, and there are some particular... Um, uh, characteristics about the dentate gyrus that may make it more suitable to the correct wiring of these new neurons into the brain. You know, it could actually be that wiring new neurons into the brain is a bad thing. You know, you're competing with connections that are already there and already been formed, right? So I think that this is a complicated question. It's something that we're just about to find out. What? Well, we're just about to study. Now, more and more, we're studying this, and you know, people are doing transplantations and putting stem cells in different parts of the brains and in looking and seeing what's, what, what, what's happening and how these cells integrate the, the, the brain. We're taking the first steps in this direction still. Have you ever tried to, to somehow artificially increase the number of stem cells? Uh, sorry, the, the number of new cells in the new neurons in the dentate gyrus? Well, there's different ways of doing it. One way is, of course, these natural manipulations such as exercise and enriched environment, which lead to uh, increased neurogenesis. 
actually, there are molecular methods to change the patterns of division of these stem cells. And this is actually something that one of the graduate students in the lab is studying. Uh, she's actually tracking the divisions of the stem cells from one day after the, after the next. She's actually tracking the divisions of stem cells day in, day out, and she's looking at how do these cells divide, you know, and, and whether they divide. A big question in the field is symmetric versus asymmetric division, meaning do the stem cells divide and keep their stemness, their ability to to remain as a stem cell, or do they divide in a, as a terminal process that will just only make new neurons and astrocytes and, and oligodendrocytes, but no new no stem cell. So we're just beginning to look at those particular factors, but it's not something that it's it's still we're still at the early stages. But of course, we can do we can manipulate with diet with uh, there's different manipulations that you can do. It's a process that is highly sensitive to the environment. Do you think the fact that there is no neurogenesis in Alzheimer's might be because of the disease, or does it sort of cause the disease? Which came first? I think the opinion of most people is that neurogenesis is impaired in Alzheimer's disease because of the disease. But the dentigyris is actually one of the first... um, areas of the brain to have to show signs of degeneration in, in, in Alzheimer's. And because it's involved in memory, it's obviously a very interesting field of study because, of course, maybe this is a place where you can intervene. Maybe even whatever deficits are there in the brain are uh, due to degeneration in a few spots and not everywhere in, in the brain. Meaning you can mitigate a lot, maybe not the whole disease, but you can mitigate a part of the the deficits associated with with Alzheimer's, if you could intervene in a couple of different spots, right? Meaning you wouldn't be curing Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. but but at this point, since we have, we can do basically nothing for Alzheimer's. Um, this is becoming a very attract, uh, attractive uh, possibility. You know, what about other disorders like, let's say, depression? So in a, in a previous episode, we were talking with John Alpert, who was chair of psychiatry here. And he was saying that if you are able to perhaps increase the adult neurogenesis in the dentate gyrus, then you could potentially help alleviate some symptoms of depression. Do you know about that? Yeah, so uh, it turns out that the hippocampus is um, involved in learning and memory. But there is one part of the hippocampus, namely the ventral part, so we kind of usually distinguish it between the dorsal and the ventral hippocampus, and the ventral hippocampus seems to play, play a role in depression, in mood disorders, anxiety, and so forth. And it turns out that the neuroge- adult neurogenesis in the ventral hippocampus is a potential target of antidepressant drugs. And this is work done in the lab of Rene Han. The pioneering work was probably by this guy called Lucas Centarelli, who in the early 2000s kind of shown that antidepressants, a, a class of antidepressants called SSRIs, which include Prozac, for example, that they increased, led to an increase in adult neurogenesis. And, and they, they proposed that this, this increase in adult neurogenesis was responsible for the antidepressant effect of the drug. And in a way, it kind of fit the idea the, the, the mechanism of, of antidepressant action very well because these neurons, these new neurons, it takes a while for them to ramp up, it takes a while for them to kind of differentiate, so, and it takes a while for these antidepressants to act, and nobody really knew why. So it was something that people really latch onto. You know, this is, here is a possible mechanism, a possible reason why um, antidepressants take so long to act. It's because uh, they will actually trigger newborn neurons and so forth. Uh, And this is a process that will take its time because these neurons need to mature. So yeah, so there there is that angle too. So is it that the drug itself induces neurogenesis or they're feeling better? And in actually a different episode, we were talking about how exercise can also, you know, maybe they're happier in general and, and 
participating in rich environments and that's generating it, you know? I think that the idea is that is that this is a causal well at least the the, the, the hypothesis is is that the neuro neurogenesis would be in the dente gyrus will be at the root of changes in, in mood. Okay. But I think that this is still an area of active research. And for sure, people have found uh, cells in the, in, and especially, you know, I'm thinking about uh, other labs too, but specifically Rene Hen over at Columbia. So they have found uh, cells that specifically seem to respond to anxiety situations. And, and this is also a very active uh, field of research. This, I guess, is a bit off topic of what we're talking about now, but you do have experience with organoids and that that's been in the news and described as mini brains in a dish. And we had discussed before that sometimes you have competing stories in the media and it's hard to, particularly as somebody who is not in the field to understand exactly what is being presented. Could you talk a little bit about your experience with brain organoids and what they're used for and what they are? So brain organoids are kind of uh, self-organized structures. So there are stem cells that differentiate and in a way kind of uh, recapitulate some of the features of a neuronal development, brain development. So most importantly, you perhaps can see uh, a layering of, of different cell types like you would see, for example, in the, in the cortex. And, and you, you generate these from stem cells? You generate these from human stem cells or, um, yeah. Okay, and then how, how do they turn into these organoids? So you kind of differentiate them, and, and, uh, and there's different ways of differentiating them, so there's different protocols, and there is this protocol that calls for kind of a 3D structure, mm -hmm. and that's how you differentiate them. It's, 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 it's a kind of self-organized 3D structure where you inject this, the cells into this... So you have them in, in this in, in this scaffold, matrix gel, mm -hmm. and um, they grow and, and they will proliferate and form these, uh, what people refer to as mini-brains. It, it's in reality more of a, a 3D culture. Right, because they, they have really basic organization, but they're far from any actual kind of functioning brain, at least as far as we can tell. Yeah, I think it would be very far-fetched to call them, you know, people call them mini-brains, but brains are way more complex than organoids. Mm -hmm. But they are useful nonetheless. Okay, so you guys have also transplanted some of these into mouse brains, these human little mini-brains, which are of what size, and then you put them into mini into the mouse. So what effect does it have on the mouse? Yeah, so these these uh, brains are like a few millimeters um, in size. And what we wanted to see was basically would these brains be able to, well, I keep calling them brains now, but they, they're, they're actually organized. Will they be able to vascularize inside an animal? And that was the main question that we, we tried to address. And there's a, a couple of reasons for why this is important. One of them is, of course, if you're thinking about regeneration, you know, would, would you be able to vascularize a chunk of tissue that is uh, not endogenous to the animal, its brain tissue, and would you be able to, to trigger this inside an animal? The other point is that one of the problems of growing these organoids is that as the organoid becomes bigger and more complex, the inside part of the organoid will actually become hypoxic, right? So it will not have access to oxygen because it's like a, a, it's becoming, it's growing like a brain, but without any circulatory system. Mm -hmm. So we thought that, you know, this was a, a way of trying to get a, a better growth of these organoids. Um, instead of growing them in a dish, you would grow them inside an, an animal and see if they, if they, will vascularize. And that was a basic question that we asked, you know, can we vascularize a chunk of the, the tissue? How does this affect the differentiation of these cells into neurons? How does it affect the the, the, the behavior of that mouse? Are you going to get a talking mouse out of this? So you got human yeah. neurons and, and a little mouse? You know, it, it's interesting. We had a lot of pushback about this paper. And the reviewers gave us a lot of pushback too. One of the things that they mentioned was that, you know, how are you sure that you're not having some sort of conscious organism? 
are you sure you're not like endowing this mouse with consciousness as you're putting him in your eyes? <laughs> it's a little Einstein mouse. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that. Uh, look, I mean, I have no, I, 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 I cannot foresee that ever happening. I don't think that these are anything close to being brain. You know, one of the jokes we 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 used to do is like, um, you should say, well, the reviewer should just ask the mouse. You know, <laughs> obviously, you know, these guys, if anything, they have less function because they we had to make space in their brains to introduce the organoids. So if anything, they're less intelligent. <laughs> I, I I think that. Though the the um, the ethical questions are not completely misplaced, obviously we need to have a discussion about how when we make these cameras, it's good to have a discussion about um, the ethics and the risks of these experiments, including risks that we not be may not be able to foresee. So I think in a way it is not misplaced to proceed with some caution. How would we ever know that we've gone too far? But that's not an easy question to answer. But I think that, of course, yeah, if you have a talking mouse, you've gone too far. <laughs> you know, I, I I think that this comes from, you know, as far as our as far as our knowledge of the brain, our current understanding of the brain is concerned. I don't really think it is feasible that these structures would have any sort of consciousness or any sort of human cognitive attributes to them. So it's it's kind of two different questions then because you have the organoid, which some people might wonder, oh, does that have a or a consciousness? Which seems very unlikely given the small amount of of neurons and the real lack of organization. The other thing is, if you transplant these neurons into the mouse, it seems to me unlikely that you would have some human consciousness coexisting with the mouse. If anything, it would just incorporate the human neurons into its function into the pre-existing right. animal. Yeah. That sounds like the script to get out the, the movie. I, I haven't seen that one. Okay. Good. So I won't spoil it. <laughs> um, well, from what I know, they've injected just human stem cells into mice before, which, uh, which were just simply incorporated. So... I guess I uh, like I imagine that it would be a similar type of incorporation, but maybe you... right. Yeah, it is similar. So these cells do. So the organoids do make connections with the rest of the mouse brain. We don't know how meaningful these these connections are. Whether they perform any sort of roles. My guess is that these are incipient connections. I think there's a lot of questions that are open. In a way, I think this work uh, opens more questions than it answers. I think what it does answer, though, is that these structures vascularize. Mm -hmm. And that was the point. And not only do they vascularize, but we found that vascularization actually improves the survival of the and the differentiation of these neurons. And also, we can we can go in and interrogate because they have, they're under a glass window. We can go and interrogate the activity of these neurons over time. With that two-photon. With that two-photon or with electrodes or with any other method you choose. Well, maybe not every other method, but with a few <laughs> other methods. So you can go and, 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 and look at the activity of these neurons over time. Oh, what, what do you think, what do you foresee being the next human genome? Maybe even specifically for, for neuroscience. The next kind of frontier is it the connectome or is it some other kind of technique? I don't know if the connectome, but even just in the brain, when I think about it, just identifying a question that we've had for a very long time, which is how many cell types there are. What's the difference between different cell types? Mm -hmm. You know, where do you draw the line of what is a cell of a certain cell type? Are there cell types? But just identifying what what are the components? Cells, neurons are the basic building blocks of the brain, so. What's the kind of adversity that exists between cells in the brain? I mean, think this is something that I think this may even be something that I I think would be a, a big achievement if we managed to figure that out, and it's now looking feasible that in the in the next few years we'll be with like the fancy single cell sequencing, single cell sequencing, and now even single cell proteomics and single cell a lot of single cell analysis. 
yeah. Looking at the, the specific proteins that are expressed. Exactly. Every Genes single... that are expressed in individual cells. Okay, so what, what's like a, a take-home message that you would like to leave people with? For me, and related to my research probably, is take care of your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's interesting how very simple and obvious things can have such a huge impact on the brain. And this is actually something that was was a very enlightening moment to me because I never thought I would end up working on enrichment and exercise in the brain. But when I first saw the effect that these very simple manipulations have, I was just blown away. You know, how could it be that you can, you know, just put a mouse in a, in a large cage with running wheels and then suddenly you see all of these differences. So do you exercise a lot now? Well, I, 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 I try to. I've, I've, always, I've always liked, I, I, I've been a runner. I haven't did going as, but yeah, I think that's um, basic, basically things that are useful for all aspects of health are very important for brain health too. So I think that's kind of the main take-home message. Adult neurogenesis gives scientists the unique opportunity to study how neurons incorporate into the existing system under normal circumstances. It can then help us understand how to control the system to rebuild neurons that have been lost or damaged in injury or disease. In the future, we may be able to enhance our neurogenesis not only in the dentate gyrus, but other regions of the brain, or maybe even through transplantation therapies. Until then, we can try modifying our environment and behaviors to help our brains better incorporate new cells and stay healthy as long as possible. So take care of your brains, everyone. Your hosts for this episode were Vasilisa and Joanna. Thanks for joining us today. Visit our website, neuronair.org, for more resources about today's episode and our guest, Dr. Tiago Gonsalves. You can follow us on social media at NeuronNerdCast to leave comments on today's episode, or to get in touch with us directly, email us at neuronnerdpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and review us. See you next time.